Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest in a long series of lectures we've had under the auspices of the LSE's European Institute um, and supported by APCO Worldwide. This is a Perspectives on Europe lecture series, also with LSE Global Governance involved and in partnership with Business for a New Europe, which is a pro-EU uh, business lobbying organisation in the UK. And uh, chairman of that, Roland Rudd, is here and will give a vote of thanks at the end. And our speaker this evening is, of course, as you see, Baroness Ashton of Up Holland, uh, but who I think is, broadly speaking, Cathy Ashton to uh, most people. Um, but she has an impressive set of titles, High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security, and first Vice President of the European Commission. I mean, it's not quite as impressive a list of titles as Peter Mandelson, but it's, you know, getting, <laughs> it's getting close. Um, and uh, she has, of course, uh, was appointed to this uh, position, or chosen for this position, um, after the passing of the Lisbon Treaty as part of the new constitutional dispensation in the European Union, which brought uh, Herman van Rompuy in as President and Cathy Ashton is uh, in as uh, Europe's Foreign Minister, we might say, uh, colloquially. Um, she is, it's the first time she's spoken here, obviously, in that role, uh, and she's going to talk to us about economics and politics post-Lisbon, which I guess gives a fairly broad field um, which you could uh, cover, and of course it's a rather exciting time as far as the European Union is concerned, with last weekend's attempts to construct a new framework for the monetary union to preserve its integrity, who knows quite how that will work, uh, and all kinds of collateral uh, debates about the role of the ECB and how you might enter or leave the European monetary union in the future. So massive areas of exciting debate and controversy, uh, but you're not here to listen to me, you're here to listen to her, so welcome to the LSE. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Howard. Uh, it's, it's a great delight to be at the LSE. I actually thought I was coming this weekend to uh, brief a new government, but I don't think we've quite got one yet, so we'll have to see. Um, and the most important part of what will happen this evening for me is the opportunity I will have to hear from you. When I finish speaking, I hope that you will ask questions or make comments on the things that I've said or things that interest you, because for me, that is the part that I enjoy most. Sometimes when I say that, people think, well, it's, you know, it's Baroness bit, what do we do about that? So let me just be clear that I want you to call me Cathy because that's what everybody does. And for those of you who don't know what a Baroness is, I'm going to tell you what my daughter said when she was at the age of seven, confronted by her head teacher who said, now Rebecca, something has happened to mummy, do you know what it is? And Rebecca said, oh yes, Mrs. Scruton, I do. Mummy has become a baroness. And her teacher said, yes, Rebecca, but do you know what that means? And in the way that only seven-year-olds, in my view, can, she said, yes, Mrs. Scruton. She's halfway between a politician and a princess. <laughs> Rebecca is now 18 and feels the trouble is I'm a bit too much like the politician and not enough like the princess. But please, when you do, feel free to call me Cathy, that's who I am. I'm really delighted to be here. In this audience, I can also see some old friends, and it's a great privilege to have you here and to see you. Um, and I'm delighted that you're able to join me. And I hope, too, in this audience, we've got a real diversification of view. That I will look forward to very much when I finish uh, what I'm going to tell you. But I'm going to talk about how we got to where we did on Lisbon and what I think has happened since, and the work that I do. And my journey to this job actually began in the House of Lords, where as leader of the Lords, I decided rather recklessly that I would take through the Lisbon Treaty. Had I known what was going to happen to me, I must admit, I might have tweaked it here and there, because I might have tried to make the job just a little bit more possible than perhaps it is. And certainly, I'd have liked to have filled in a few of the blanks that I found as I've tried to translate the written word of the treaty into the job and the work that we have to do. 
I don't expect that all of you have read it. Well, maybe you have. But it created, particularly for me, the role that I'm privileged to hold. Before that, you'll know probably that I was a trade commissioner. I replaced my friend Peter Mandelson when he returned to the UK, and I went out to finish his mandate of about a year. And when I was trade commissioner, I was very struck by the ability to be able to negotiate on behalf of half a billion people, 500 million people behind me, enabling me to negotiate economically really strong, sound trade agreements right across the world. We, in a sense, were an economic superpower. And that capacity is something that is a real benefit of Europe. Important trade relations between the UK and lots of other countries, but the benefit of negotiations on behalf of so many means we get, I think, much better deals. And when I look at the Lisbon Treaty, what was happening over the years in creating that treaty was a recognition that politics needed to meet economics. That what we were able to do economically as an economic superpower, we needed to do in a sense politically. Not, not to take over the role of individual member states, but to do the things where as 27 we could do it better. Where we could have a political strategy as 27 as well as an economic strategy. In a sense, bringing together what Europe does well, that adds value and dare I say, also to try and make a difference in some of the really difficult issues that we face. A difference that can affect you and me as people, you living in the UK, me living partly in Brussels, partly here, partly on a plane. A difference to the security and the stability of the people of this country and the other 26 countries, members of the European Union. So let me just tell you four things that the Lisbon Treaty does that are particularly relevant to this. First of all, that we can speak with one voice where we all agree, whether at 27 we can say things as one. And that, I argue, is a much more powerful thing. Let me take one issue tonight that I'm very <laughs> conscious of, which is the Middle East peace process. Now tonight, we know that the proximity talks led by Senator George Mitchell, who I was talking to a couple of days ago, are underway. I would describe him as cautiously optimistic. There's a long way to go, but the European Union's support to try and get this process moving is important. When I was in the region, region and I had the privilege of meeting with many leaders, I met with the Palestinian president, President Abbas, with the Prime Minister Fayed, I met the Israeli leadership too. We were able to talk as one and make it clear that we wanted to see progress and we wanted to see a solution. Getting these talks going, getting to where we all know we have to get to as quickly as possible. <coughs> Secondly, the Lisbon process allows us to use the resources that we've got, particularly the economic ones, more effectively. Development, something that many of you will feel passionately about, I believe is at the heart of what Europe does. We want to see countries successful, healthy economies, healthy people, educated children. And that's why yesterday we spent many hours with the development ministers. I chair the Foreign Affairs Council when it's development ministers too, talking about the Millennium Development Goals and trying to make sure that we're making the really significant progress we need to make to achieve those goals, ready for the conference in New York on September 17th that will review where that progress has got to. But development also bring, bringing in a sense into the broader strategy. I'll give you one example of aid for trade. Some of the work that we do in supporting the trading capacity of other countries. Haiti, a country devastated by a terrible earthquake that in 35 seconds killed 350,000 people. When I was there, I was looking at the potential of what Haiti could do to try and rebuild itself. It produces the best mangoes in the world. Now, it can export those mangoes as raw materials to different countries. It can spend probably up to a year trying to get the right agreement on whether the mangoes are the right shape, the right quality, how they've been grown, and so on. But one of the things we've been talking about is building a mango chutney plant in Haiti. Because then what you get is jobs created to make the glass jars, to make the labels, to do the processing, to build a production plant, to produce a product that will last longer, that can travel further, and will provide a stronger economic backdrop. You can do that with aid for trade. 
And then you can build the infrastructure of the roads that will take the lorries, that will take it to the airport, that will fly out the mango chutney. In other words, you start to build development into a broader strategy of where trade, development, aid and support can all uh, fit together. Third, what Lisbon says is we're able to add our civilian mission resources. In Afghanistan, I have people who are training police officers to help keep the security in the local communities, adding to the development work that we're also doing there. In Kosovo, we have people working to support the rule of law, to help establish the institutions that need to be there if this country is going to grow. Fourth, to add occasionally military support. Let me return to Haiti. When the earthquake happened, for the first time, we coordinated across the European Union, and that meant we sent immediately support to provide food and shelter to get people out of the rubble if we possibly could, medical teams, paramedics, pediatricians, support workers. We worked with individual countries across the European Union. So for the first time, we knew who had sent what. And for the first time, we brought in military support to back it up to find the ships that can dock without needing the docking facilities that had completely collapsed in the port area of Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti. Helicopters who flew the injured or flew the equipment. The British ship that went down there spent its whole time simply going around the island because the roads were impossible, taking equipment, taking people, taking supplies. And I describe to people the Lisbon Treaty in action when I think about for example, what the Italians were doing in Haiti, were under the command through the ship that they had there. They had people clearing rubble, rebuilding a school, <coughs> firefighters who'd gone down there with their skills to be able to try and deal with some of the problems. They had doctors, they had nurses, they had dentists, they had psychiatrists, they had child support workers, they had NGOs there building the camps that I went into to get people together, to provide basic education, for the school, all working together as one, all providing support that was linked together. That, if anything, for me, is what Lisbon uh, is about. Or if, if I take another example, perhaps, of what's happening in Somalia. Somalia is a country which has got serious economic and political problems. And you will know that off the coast of Somalia, you hear a lot about piracy. You hear a lot about ships being captured. Well, we've got a mission down there which is actually run from the UK, from Northwood, just north of London, run by Admiral Hudson. And it has 10 countries with 12 ships, plus some air support provided actually by Luxembourg, who fund that, which helps to keep ships safe. But it's linked to a broader plan. And next week, when I go down to visit the region and to go onto the ships and see what we're doing, we'll also be looking at what else we can do, because the problem of piracy will not be solved at sea, it will be solved by what happens on the land, by how we're able to support Somalia to turn round its economy, to turn round its support. So that's where you see the bringing together of all of the different elements. The military mission to support the shipping, the development mission to support the economy, the institution building to support the government, the security to provide for people on the ground. All of those things linked together is what the treaty now enables us to do. But also, of course, a lot of what we do means we work with other people. We work with other countries. There are huge challenges to be faced across the world. Climate change, nuclear proliferation. Going to the conference last week in New York, talking at the conference on behalf of the EU, but seeing so many countries there determined to deal with the three pillars of nuclear proliferation, dealing with what we do about nuclear weapons for the future and for the present. The economic crisis needs a global response. In Haiti, again, 1.2 billion euros guaranteed from uh, the European Union. The conference that I co-chaired in New York with Hillary Clinton, with the French, uh, with the Spanish, with others, where we looked at a 10-year plan to provide jobs for the economy as well as, of course, the immediate support. So developing those relationships with others. Let me give you some examples. This morning, before I left to come here, I met with the Foreign Minister of South Africa, a country we work very closely with in trying to tackle some of the big challenges in Africa. I've mentioned Somalia, but also Sudan, where a referendum in January will decide whether Sudan splits into two or remains as one. 
and the complex things that need to happen, whichever way that referendum goes, in order to try and support that country and prevent a spiraling down into war. Yesterday I met with the Foreign Minister of South Korea to sign an agreement that encompasses education links, collaboration on trade, building that kind of economic and political partnership. And last week I was in Japan where we were working together to prepare for the Non-Proliferation Treaty in New York and where, for example, we're working on, again, the economic and political partnership. Or uh, the work we do with Russia. Russia's been supporting our work off the coast of Somalia, but also, of course, on issues to do with energy, a critical, critical strategic player that we need to work with effectively. India and Brazil. The United States, of course, remains our biggest trading partner, our closest strategic partner. We work all the time with the US. Dialogues that go on a lot, a great deal, meetings that I have with Secretary of State Clinton, phone calls that we have to try and tackle again some of the big issues. Iran and the fear of nuclear weapons in Iran. Bosnia, Herzegovina, as we look at the future of that country as it builds to elections in October. The Horn of Africa, again, tackling some of those big problems. Countries like Yemen, Afghanistan. And of course, meetings with the United Nations, which span with Ban, with Ban Ki-moon all the issues you'd expect. Real concerns about climate change, his building towards the Millennium Development Goals Conference in September, proliferation and so on. I addressed the Security Council for the first time last week on behalf of the European Union. But let me say something too about China. I think perhaps China is the defining political challenge of our age and how we accommodate the rise of China. The state of our relationships, I think, with Beijing directly affects what happens in our economic relationships, the flow of goods, of services, of capital and people in both directions and actually our prospects for economic growth. Think what China has done, the most extraordinary economic turnaround, half a trillion dollars half a trillion dollars of economic stimulus has got China in 2009 to a position of growth of 8.7%, which is quite remarkable. I went to see the opening of the Expo in Shanghai. You probably saw it on the television. Again, a real show of China's confidence in itself and in its future. And yet, we don't feel comfortable because this kind of superpower economic power <coughs> not really matched by the political superpower that we need to engage with us uh, in the world. Actually, political and public opinion in Europe is quite negative, with concerns about China's policies, climate change, cybersecurity, economic imbalances. We have 50 economic dialogues with China, but only now am I setting up the first real political dialogue beyond the summits that we have with China. The purpose of that is to persuade them to take responsibility, to take action on what you might call global public goods. Climate change is one. Economic system is, is another. But also internally. When I was in China, I met with civil society activists and I talked to them about what more we could do in the EU to try and support a more open approach from China. And to do all that, my examples, the four new things that really Lisbon provides, working with our partners, we need to create a service to do it. What's called the External Action Service, which brings together on the ground all of those different resources and also in the centre, making the best use of them, getting people to collaborate effectively together to ensure that we have strategic thinking, real ability to make a difference on the ground in what we do. We are the biggest donor in the world. We need to make sure that the aid we provide is linked, as I described it in the example of the mango chutney in Haiti, to trying to find ways in which we can seriously change people's lives for the better, support their economic growth, support their political growth, and through that, support us too. Because if we see that economic growth, then they trade with us, they buy our goods, and that relationship grows too. And of course, politically, it's easier. And then, of course, the final bit of the equation is I'm also a commissioner. The Lisbon Treaty creates this rather unique beast, which is both High Representative on behalf of the 27 Member States and First Vice President of the European Commission. That means I chair the Foreign Affairs Council, whether it's Foreign Ministers, Defence Ministers, Development Ministers for all 27 countries, but I'm also the Vice President of the Commission, who attends Commission meetings. 
and amongst lots of things, actually supports my colleagues who have the responsibility of trying to deal with issues like what do we do about energy for the future, how do we deal with transport issues across Europe, climate change, trade, and of course the European stability mechanism that we worked on over the weekend. When I was talking to the CBI a couple of weeks ago, they were saying how much they look forward to what's called the 2020 Agenda, which is about trying to get green technology, investment in skills, smart, sustainable and inclusive growth. So let me conclude. I think Lisbon is the opportunity to make economics and politics fit together, to develop serious strategic strategies where Europe agrees that all 27 come together, not to take away what individual <coughs> member states do, but actually to build on the best of what Europe can be, offering the best where Europe works the best. But my caveat is we're at the beginning of the process, not the end. We've got to strengthen the ability to respond. We've got to work out where we agree, and we've got to build a service. So just in case you thought Lisbon was the end, I'm going to end with a joke that I've heard many times on my travels and actually always makes me smile. And if the joke goes like this. The Secretary of State in the United States goes to the President and says, Mr. President, finally, an answer to the question that Henry Kissinger raised, which is, we want to talk to Europe, whose number do we ring? We have one phone number. Let's ring the number and see what happens. So they ring the number and they get my voicemail. And the voicemail says, welcome to Europe. For the French position, press one. For the German position, press two. It's a great job. The Italian position, you get it. It's a great job. But in some ways, the reason I tell it to you is we are at the beginning of a process. And one day, as we already see on some issues, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's the work we're trying to do on non-proliferation, while it's tackling some of the real challenges, when Europe speaks as one voice, it is an enormous privilege to be the voice and to make a difference for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the, the FT diary, which included that joke about uh, three months ago, reported that it was made up, uh, which is probably not true, but by Alexander Stubb, the Finnish oh, yeah, no, foreign minister, who, who is an LSE alumnus. So I thought this was a kind of full circle <laughs> here, a joke beginning and returning back uh, to, the, to the school. I'm happy to give Alexander credit, actually, because he's a great friend, but I heard it first in Slovenia of all places. So I don't know. Maybe. Well, it's one of these days we there ought to be a tracer to find, this, find the origin of this. Uh, yeah. um, I, I'll throw it open, but let me kick off with just one question uh, of my own. I mean, the um, process of trying to produce an answer to the uh, Greek problem was pretty protracted. And um, I noticed there was a headline in the, the New Yorker, in the New York Times sorry, last week, which said, In Greek tragedy, where is Europe? And it's pretty clear that around the world, this has not been Europe's finest hour in terms of um, policy making. I mean, do you think that that perception that the monetary union is under threat and that the decision making processes in Europe are not able to cope with this kind of market problem, does that damage your ability to do your job in other areas? I mean, I'm not seeking to get you to go into the details of the stability fund, which um, possibly wouldn't be a great way of spending our time. But I mean, is this a, do you think it actually weakens your ability to deliver in the other areas, whether it's trade, policy, or aid, whatever? No, but I think you're right to point to the fact that confronted with the kind of global economic instability that all countries have faced over the last year, it's been an issue that's reverberated, that's had its ripples into all aspects of policy without doubt. I don't think it's affected our ability to work collaboratively, but it's certainly meant that countries have had to work together in a very different way. Think about the G20. The G20, in a sense, has been a result of the need to be able to come together economically. And so too in Europe, that now the opportunities or the challenges that are created mean that countries have got to think very carefully about the collaboration that they do. So not a direct effect, but it's in a sense part, I think, of us being aware 
that these big challenges economically have affected so many countries and require us to have coordinated answers? Um, but open, yeah. Quick, we microphones coming? Yeah. Uh, guy on the about fourth, fifth row, uh, sort of follically challenged character um, with a. Um, that was cruel. A, there. <laughs> No, he's got a pen. He's got a pen. There you are. <laughs> Policy challenge. Um, thank you very much. Hi, my name is David Brand. Thank you very much, um, Cathy. It's, uh, your candle was very appreciated, and it's very nice to have you here. Um, I noted three very quick questions I wanted to ask you. Firstly, was, your, was the EU position on the WTO and trade? Uh, you mentioned the trade and how you traded on behalf of the EU around the world, but what's the position with regard to WTN negotiations? Secondly, I want to ask you, you concluded by saying it's the beginning of the process. What's your vision for Europe on, uh, on, on the global stage as a global player uh, over the next medium to long term? And thirdly, you didn't mention what's going to happen if there's a Conservative government. Is it going to be harder for you to deal with them? Is it going to be harder for them to deal with you? Is the EU going <laughs> to... You know where I'm going. Yes, uh, I'm not going to have any more triple questions, by the way, but I'll take a couple more before we yeah. ask you. Um, guy in the middle there with his hand up. Yep. Um, I think it was uh, a few years ago that Chris Patton said that uh, the EU foreign policy could, uh, was all too often sending someone to Europe um, as almost a replacement for having an active foreign policy in a certain area. And how much do you think that's changed? And will change in the future as opposed to just sending someone to say this is Europe having a look at what's going on rather than doing something as a united group of nations. Well, I think a third one, the guy yeah, three rows back directly behind you. There you are. Okay. That's on its way. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I was wondering, how, in the way that you see your job and the development of your position, do you see your position as directly reflecting the views of 27 member states? Do you see it as, and with them in the lead? Do you see it as mediating between them and sometimes bringing some up to the consensus position? Or do you see yourself as having a position where you can actually lead and bring their positions along to what you think they should be? Okay. And David, you were the only one who gave me your name, so the others would be anonymous, but I'll wave at you. Um, three questions, all of which could take at least 20 minutes, so I'll, be, I'll give you the very short answer, but, but forgive me, it won't satisfy you. WTO, do you mean the Doha round? Both. Both. Okay. World Trade Organization, we're very strong supporters of in the European Union. Uh, it's, as you know, a very democratic organization. That brings its own challenges, but it's critical because it produces the rules of trade. And that means the slide into protectionism didn't happen when the economic crisis hit in the way it would have done with that WTO. The Doha round, I've been a very strong advocate for trying to complete the round. It's critically important. It's called the Doha development round for a reason, but it also has huge benefits, actually, for the whole world. But we're not there yet. The vision for Europe as a global player is simply that when we're able to speak as one voice, we do it as effectively as we do economically that when you see Europe in action, you know it's Europe because it's joined up, it's making a difference, and it's putting the right level of political pressure because it's all 27 acting together. The Conservative government no, it won't make any difference. I'm appointed by 27 heads of state. The Conservatives, in as much as they've been in contact with me before, obviously before the election, have been extremely kind and supportive. And as leader of the House of Lords, I worked with very eminent people from all political parties, and I would continue to work with whatever the elected government of the day is in any country. I've got 27 to work with. Um, sending someone to Europe instead, do you mean instead of doing your own foreign policy that you actually just send someone off to Europe instead? In the sense that Europe can't have a combined foreign policy with someone, so almost as a replacement, they'll just send somebody uh, to, to look like that is your stance on it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a position now where that's history, because what we're able to do, and there's a number of different issues, whether it's our views on how to try and tackle uh, Iran and nuclear weapons, whether it's the Middle East peace process, whether it's trying to support uh, the work on anti-piracy, whether it's working collaboratively to try and deal with human rights issues, which is a really big issue for me and a very important silver thread through all of this. Actually, Europe does have a strong collective voice, so I don't think we're in that position. 
But we're not there yet, hence my joke, because there are many, many ways in which we need to bring that together. I've been there a few months, uh, and the first one is a lot, long way to go. And then the question of how do I see my job? 27 member states leading me, me mediating, or me leading them? Yes. <laughs> because in some circumstances, it's really important that 27 drive the agenda. Sometimes my job is to actually make proposals and actually try and get that kind of agreement. And sometimes it's a negotiation, particularly trying to produce a text that says this is what we think. There are nuances that you have to negotiate. So it's, it's a flippant answer to you, but it is true. You actually hit exactly on all three. Let's go up to the top at the back there. Um, yeah, go right on the back row. Um, yes, thanks very much again for your talk. Um, and I'd just like to say that I was pleased to hear your emphasis on human rights, which is an issue that's also very important and dear to my heart. And as such, I was very disappointed to hear of Israel's imminent accession to the OECD. Um, I think that it is incumbent upon the European Union to play an active role in the peace process, and I don't think that allowing Israel to accede to this very important body um, is conducive to upholding the moral norms that should characterize the EU insofar as Israel has demonstrated that it has, uh, it has demonstrated a clear disregard for human rights both in its Operation Caste-led and in its continued colonization of the, um, the occupied West Bank. And as such, I have a letter here from the entirety of Palestinian civil society which represents a legal challenge to the accession of Israel to the OECD. And I would be very honored if you would take this letter and consider it um, in, in due time. Thank you. Um. Yeah, let's go the middle over there, um, woman in the pink, pink scarf. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about development. Wait for the, the mic's just coming to you. Yeah, you've got two even. Yeah, great. <laughs> Lucky you. You talked about the development and foreign policies with and the nuclear energy on Iran. I wanted to know what measures do you think the EU should take with discouraging the human rights abuse that is taking place in Iran at the moment. Thank you. And I'll take one more down here. That woman there in the white. White. We need Thank a good evening. I'd like to colorblind know. steward. If you know. <laughs> good evening. I'd like to know your position and Brussels' position on um, the Romanian president's ambition to grant an increasing number of Romanian citizenships, or for that matter, EU citizenships, to Moldovans. The Romanian president. Yes. To Moldovans. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They are aiming to grant around 10,000 citizenships per month. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Very, uh, very interesting questions. Uh, if I start with the, I mean, the really important issue of what's happening in the Middle East at the present time. The OECD is an organization that people accede to by reaching economic criteria. You may not like that, but that's how it works. The issue for us has been what is our relationship with Israel at the current time. And you will know that we have stopped our plans to upgrade the economic relationship for the current time. That was the decision that we have taken for the present time. Uh, and in my discussions, I'm very clear that we want to see movement in terms of the Middle East peace process. If we see that movement, then we will put our economic weight behind the movement to get to the two-state solution. And for my part, I went to Gaza, as you know, I was the first politician that went into Gaza from the Israeli side since the war. I went because we are the biggest supplier of aid in Gaza, and I wanted to see particularly what's happening with children there. I know how important it is to get this process moving, to get uh, the uh, boundary opened between Gaza and Israel, to get aid in, to get support in. So to that extent, I completely understand your position, and I'd be more than happy to take your letter and deliver it the OECD on your behalf, if that's what you wish me to do. Um, in terms of uh, uh, human rights abuses uh, and uh, what's happening in Iran, well, you'll know that we've been working very hard to try and put the pressure on Iran. I'm very concerned about what's happening in terms of nuclear weapon technology in Iran, the discoveries that have been made about the sites. I'm worried about their uh, lack of response to the international community. I take a very straightforward view. We have international rules to keep us safe, and you have to stick to the rules, and if you don't stick to the rules, it's our job to enforce the rules. 
which is why the discussions are going on currently about what sanctions can be made. But in the mix of all that, you are completely right. We're very aware of what's happening in terms of human rights, trying to do our best to put the pressure on with the regime. But you'll understand, too, just how difficult that is at the present time. And in terms of the Romanian president, I don't have the details of what Romania is doing on Moldova. You'll know that that's been a long-running issue uh, with <coughs> Romania. We certainly are making sure in our relationships, Moldova as the European Union, that we're trying to work to make this a better and more secure area. If I say that much at this stage, and then perhaps <coughs> I'll tell you. Uh, can you come down? Because well, a woman here in uh, Mauve, when I describe that as. Yeah. Is that a... Can you, get, can you do MOVE? Yeah, okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, Clara O'Donnell from the Centre for European Reform. I was like, how would you like to see permanent structured cooperation in defence being put to use over the next few years? And what appetite do you see amongst member states to resort to the new mechanism? Resort to? Well, permanent structured cooperation, how, do you, how would you like to see it put to use? And are member states actually keen to use it? Thanks. Okay. Uh, man down there in blue shirt. Yes, my name is Mr. Bonf, I'm from Oxford, the Sustainable Development Enterprise. And I would like to share my experience that I had with the European Union, with AIDCO and DG policy. I was invited by the IBM to develop a system for managing all the European ACP funds to the developing countries for the next 2.5 million to 3.0 million euro for the next strategy. So I did introduce, I mean, we did introduce a very, let's say, technological, uh, let's say, IT governance for managing the program and the project. Well, they refused it to, let's say, discuss with me or discuss with all our group. And I would like you, how you can talk about global governance? How you can talk about one voice? How you can talk about, uh, let's say, integrate approach? One, one, when you are not taking into consideration some structure, society structure, to do the monitoring and measure the performance of the funds that we are available. When there is no between different departments from policy and ideal communication, we ask for project, we ask for information, and they refuse it. Can I, maybe I will be interested to have some kind of sharing of our approach. Thank you. And uh, man just behind you there, the blue, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Thomas Hermans, a student political economy, European political economy here at LSE. Uh, Professor Helen Wallace has described your uh, job as quite impossible, being in the commission, being high rep, uh, having to be everywhere um, around the globe. Uh, how would you redesign your job if you had the opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. I think mauve depends on what size of paint box you had when you were little. My box only had purple in it, so I never really got the mold. If you had the big box, it had all the different colours worked out properly. That's what I was saying. Defence, um, uh, the, the permanent structured cooperation. There's, there's a bit of work currently going on, which the Spanish presidency are leading, to look at what that might be. So I can't give you much more than to say it's something that member states now are beginning to turn their mind to thinking about. But we're only really four or five months into the post-Lisbon Treaty moment. So a lot of the energy of member states has been going into working out how we bring together what we currently have. The principle, though, behind it is to enable people to be able to collaborate more effectively. It used to happen when I was a, a justice minister, lots of issues around justice, you had smaller groups of countries who would actually collaborate effectively and then, in a sense, spread that. So there's quite a number of interesting models that they could use, but at the present time, it's absolutely drawing board stage. Uh, in terms of what's being done. Um, the ACP, I think the two things that, that, that I'd say to you are, first of all, it's really, it's really difficult for me to talk about specific examples because I don't know what happened. Um, what I would say is that you talked about the lack of communication between departments and that, as an issue, is something that, from my bit of the world, of the Lisbon Treaty, I hope will resolve. If you want to buy, give me the details of what happened, I'd be more than happy to look at it for you. But you'll understand I don't know enough about it to give you a, a sensible answer. All I'd say is that working with the ACP countries is a really important part of the work we need to do. They're a critical group of countries with whom we have to have strong relationships. And the impossible job. 
Some of you will have, those of you like Doctor Who, anybody like Doctor Who? <laughs> Some of you will know that I have a Tardis, I have a, a, a Dalek, and the joke is in my house that I need a Tardis and not a Dalek. Um, I think the only thing I'd say is that, that the job is only impossible if you don't prioritise. And once people had got over the shock that we actually had somebody, and guess what, it was me, and that I couldn't be in three places at once, try as I might, I think there's been a recognition that the key thing to do is to prioritise. So what makes my job doable is I've tried to set out what I want to do. I'm trying to be reasonable with my time, but I've also tried to make sure that I really do the job to the best of my ability. So the only thing I would change is perhaps a few of the expectations at the beginning. We'll go over to the, the left wing, right? Woman just um, next to you, then Gray, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your talk as well. Um, if I may say, one of your most important jobs coming up is the creation of the External Action Service. Um, and one of the stated aims of that is to be budget neutral, to require no more monies than were given to the Department for External Representation and so on. Do you think that that's a good aim, considering that it's supposed to be a real legacy of the European Union and it's got such stated aims um, to, uh, for coherence that you mentioned? Thanks. And then down on the front row here, there have been two people patiently. First guy with a striper tie. Yep. Yep. And then you. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Mehmet Aslan, I'm from Turkish newspaper Vakit. Um, last week, a court in Ankara sentenced our newspaper, Vakit newspaper, to pay um, 1 million euro to 312 generals uh, because a colonist in the newspaper wrote that um, criticizing army and saying that um, those who wouldn't have been allowed to become generals, um, uh, uh, corporals, have, be, um, have become uh, generals. And do you I would like to um, ask your assessment of this case. And do you think that press freedom is still at stake in Turkey and it's high time that um, EU should take Turkey in the club in order to save um, uh, the country um, from the uh, shadow of generals and army? Thank you. Thank you. Too long. Yeah. Baron Ashton, while you've made clear that you have no issue in working with the Conservative government, Chancellor Merkel and President Sarkozy might have an issue in working with the Conservative government. Isn't that bound to make your job more difficult and more difficult actually to have one voice speaking for Europe? And finally, just can you say what you see as your role or any role at all in resolving the Cyprus dispute, particularly in view of the election of a hardline president in Northern Cyprus? Thank you. Gosh, they're good questions. I'm fascinated that you know about budget neutrality. That's really, uh, really impressive. And where we are on the discussions with, with the budget is, of course, I'm ambitious for the service. And of course, I recognize that in order to do some of the changes that we want to do, uh, ultimately, we've got to decide how resources are spent. But it's a combination of things. First of all, it's about the allocation of resources that currently exist, how the cake is currently carved up, and whether the cake needs to be carved up slightly differently, depending on the priorities that we put forward. So one of the discussions currently going on is how do you make sure that the priorities that Europe wishes to have are recognised in the budget that it has. And then secondly, it's about moving beyond where we are currently are to where we'd like to be in the future. And I've got to do that realistically against the backdrop of the economic situation across Europe. And that's what you'll see me do. But we haven't drawn up the final budgets yet, but it will be against, with those things in mind. How do we make the cake work better? What are the things we'd like to do, which maybe we can't do straight away, but which we should highlight as being things for the future as well. Uh, in terms of the individual case in Turkey, I can't comment on an individual case. It would be wrong. I don't know enough about the situation. Of course, I accept what you say about it. What I would say is I met yesterday with the Foreign Minister of Turkey. When we meet, I'm very keen to impress upon Turkey the needs and the, and the importance as they look towards their future in Europe of taking on board all of the issues we care about and which, of course, some of those issues may well be within the question uh, that you've asked me. And um, I might not have problems, but... Um, President Sarkozy and Chancellor Merkel might. Well, in foreign policy terms, I'm pretty confident that I know where a Conservative government would go. And actually, the issues that concern them, on your behalf, if it is a Conservative government, and I don't yet know if we know anything, um, that um, are pretty much the concerns that would be the same for any government. So they will be worrying about issues to do with what we do about Iran, 
making sure that we have strong transatlantic partnership, thinking about China, looking across on energy security and so on. So I'm confident about that. As for the leaders, well, they're pretty good at working together when it comes to it, so we'll see. Cyprus. Sorry, I beg your pardon. On Cyprus, I mean, yeah, what, where we are now is that the process is still moving forward. We've got to see whether the change in leadership is going to make a significant difference. So far, uh, it looks as if things will continue to move forward, but the EU does have a role, and you're completely right. It's a role really not specifically so much for me, but actually for the EU27 to be working collaboratively to try and support the process. Again, we know what the end result is we want, but we need to keep it moving. Go over to the extreme right wing there. Yeah, <coughs> there is a woman with... Uh, yeah. Hi, my name is Marie, and I'm studying European Studies at UCL. And uh, my question... No, I'm sorry, I went to you then. <laughs> uh, well, um, we've talked about development quite a lot already, but I've still got a question nevertheless. And um, I was wondering, because there are obviously some policies of the EU that contradict the development policies. I'm thinking of the... Common the what policies? Uh, the common agriculture policy, oh, right. for example, or trade policies that contradict development policies. And I was wondering whether you think um, that will change under Lisbon um, and what your general opinion about that would be. And the guy behind... Joe Powell from the One Campaign. Um, it was great to hear the prominence you gave to development in your speech and to the Millennium Development Goals Summit in September. However, we have to think to the future where a, pers a person in your position may not give development the same prominence. And given that and the current formation of the External Action Service, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see the Development Commissioner maintaining control yeah. over the budget and policy uh, to ensure that if, if a person in your position feels that they want to use the development budget for other interests, yeah. not for poverty reduction, that yeah. there's that safeguard in place. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, man down here in the uh, sec yeah, second row. Get down. Yeah. That's the guy. Uh, it's a bit in line with the questions you've uh, just had. I think it's wonderful that the EU should want to ensure that Haiti bottles its own mangoes uh, and that Italian warships help with the earthquake assistance, but I'm not sure that's what we need a high representative for security policy who is a vice president of the commission to achieve. I'm not sure that we couldn't have achieved those anyway. Um, what I missed, Cathy, from your remarks was any reference to interests. I would like to think that your job was the identification of the EU's strategic interests across various policy areas, which may be contradictory, and then bring them together. The CAP has been mentioned in question just now. Another one, since you mentioned it yourself, was Somalia and the pirates of Somalia. And you said quite rightly, I'm sure, that the solution was on the land and not in the sea. Uh, and yet the original problem arose at sea because, as I understand it, the Somalis were deprived of their own fish by foreign fishing fleets, I think not European ones specifically, but others. Nonetheless, for example, the European Union has a very predatory fisheries policy. I say this with all modesty sitting next to my good friend, the Spanish ambassador. Uh, would you see your job, for example, uh, as trying to bring together a strategic European view um, of its interests in the whole nexus of fisheries policies, development policies, immigration policies, because one thing that's clear is that these predatory fishing policies are bankrupting local fishermen and driving them up into Morocco to emigrate into Europe. Uh, that's the sort of thing I would like to think that Lisbon enables you in your position to do, bringing together the security interests of the European Union and the economic actors, each with its own sectoral pressures. Okay. okay, Marie from UCL. You don't have to answer questions from UCL, no, but it's entirely up to you. I just thought I should in the interest of, you know. Um, on whether the common agriculture policy contradicts development. I mean, there are, there are strategic interests for Europe in uh, what it does internally as well as what it does externally. And there's been a long-running debate, and it will go on, about how we reform and develop and grow, bearing in mind the significance of many industries across the European Union. The biggest, I think, way in which we can make a difference 
to support agricultural policies across the world would be to complete the Doha round. Because in the Doha development round, we put in a huge offer on agriculture. It's really important. And it was a very, very difficult, I think, conclusion to reach. It wasn't me, uh, it was my predecessor, Peter, and, and the work that, that some of the other commissioners did that actually achieved that. But they went with a very strong offer. And if we were able to complete the round, that would have the greatest significance, I think, in terms of being able to support development more broadly, but particularly on agriculture. So that's where I would put my energies and where the Trade Commission, I think, will, will, put, will put his. Joe, on, on development, I don't, I don't intend to design this in a way that somebody can come along and just dig it up and move it along. The Development Commissioner, Andrews Pubels, is really, really important. And what I've done is given him more control over development. Because what used to happen was you had this split, and it was Africa here and the rest of the world here. And I could have just had that split, and I could have carried on doing the rest of the world all by myself and the strategic development bits of Africa. Instead of which, we've changed it, and we've actually said we don't have that split anymore. We have development across the world. And Andres Pibals is responsible for working on the development of all of it. He's responsible for working out what we do in the countries and how we do it together. And we were discussing this with all development ministers last night together is we try and work out the framework. My job is to kind of put the politics over it. There's a framework in which we're operating, not to make development subject to foreign policy, which is a big fear, but to see that development and foreign policy sometimes fit together. Helping nations rebuild themselves is partly about development, partly about other things. But the development commissioner has his responsibilities, and they are, in my view, bigger than they were before. And Andrews is very content, and that's how we're going to design it, not in a way that can be dug up. And actually, under Lisbon, that's the only way it could be. Proposals cannot come from me on development. They come to the Commission, actually from both of us, to show we've got that link. But it's, it's Andrews who will do the work, as I keep telling him, and he's very happy about that. Um, so please spread the word on that, because it's very important to be in the development community here understand that that's what we're doing. And then on, on interest, well I thought I'd kind of try to describe interest, so I apologise that I clearly failed completely. Uh, because when I talked about Somalia and piracy, when I talked about some of the issues, it's about saying what is in the interests of EU citizens. I've said the External Action Service is about security and stability for us by what we do in the rest of the world. If we have a secure, stable world, economically, politically, it makes a huge difference to the ability of the, the people of this, of this country and of Europe to be able to get on with their lives and to be able to have the kind of economic uh, development and growth and to have the kind of opportunities that we wish, particularly this next generation well represented here, we want them to have. So it is about those interests. But it's not about doing things that the Commission currently does. So some of the issues you describe about fisheries, some of the issues you describe about immigration, are Commission competencies under the, all the previous treaties that happened before. My job is to coordinate where they, move, they come externally. And that means looking, and you're absolutely right, looking at what we think in how to support some of the issues off the coast of Somalia. The answer for the fishing communities is what we can do together with the countries in the region, with other countries joining in to support the development. So it is about our interests. But I was really trying to impress, clearly badly, that what we need to do is, is align our interests with other interests because that's when we get the best possible outcome for all of us. We'll take one last uh, round. But before we do, I've just been given a note which says that the Prime Minister, whose name just for the moment escapes me, um, <laughs> uh, has resigned um, and suggests that David Cameron should form a government. We'll see. Um, may have a few more twists and turns in this tale, but let's take one last round of questions. Woman in with the black there with the specs. Yeah. Caterina Carta, Department of International Relations. Um, we know from the documents have been agreed upon by the Council that one third of the member of the new ES armies will be composed by diplomats of the member states. Do we have already an, an analogous proportion of members coming from the Commission and from the Council? And I would like also to ask you, when will we have an organizational chart for the EIS? 
Thank you very much. Can you just repeat the first bit of the question again? Because the acoustics down here don't help them. Uh, organizational chart I got. What was the first part of the question about? Yeah, um, the last given? document, for instance, um, that you presented in March um, the 25th. Yeah, a, third of, a third of staff coming from member states. Yeah, one Thank third you. was that, and I wanted to know the, if there is already an idea on proportion, analogous proportion for the commissions and council. Thanks. Okay. Uh, woman down in the middle, um, also in black with a scarf. Right down here, yeah. criteria for success. I'm thinking of the Democratic Republic of Congo, but that could be other cases. Um, but where there is a significant lack of political will, uh, how does the EU and the, both the Commission and the Member States, um, or rather what type of leverage does the EU and the Member States have in making sure that things move forward in such contexts? Okay. I'm going to take a last one. Gosh, I've got so many. I'll take, um, yeah, you with the one who's waving. There you are. Wind bum waving. Thank you. You're going to lose if you can't lose the micro use the microphone, however. But, okay. um, yeah, uh, I'm from DLSE. <laughs> I'm um, my name is John Ringer, a second-year IR student at the LSE. Um, we went on a trip to Belarus with the Grimshaw Society um, at the end of March, and one uh, concern that was expressed there was that because of uh, because of the Lisbon Treaty uh, and the role it gives to the increased role it gives the European Parliament it's going to be harder to constructively engage with countries like Belarus and sort of um, work with them despite their human rights abuses and despite the problems they may have in order to encourage them. And I mean, to what extent is that true in, Bel in the case of Belarus and in the case of other uh, EU countries? Or, sorry, yeah. 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 I, I get it, John. Don't worry. I've got it. Um, a third, of a third of staff coming from member states, well, we're just designing now the plan that will actually achieve that. It won't be achieved overnight. This is about really allowing the Lisbon Treaty to demonstrate its effectiveness by allowing diplomats to come from member states into the missions that we have on the ground. So that's the plan. That's what we'll do. Currently, we've got um, uh, advertisements out for the rotation of some of our ambassadors. Member states will be applying for those. I will appoint the best and the brightest that we can find from wherever they come. Hopefully we'll see some from <coughs> member states as well as from elsewhere. Organisational chart, well I've got lots of organisational charts, I've been given them from lots of countries who tell me this is best or this works best or whatever. Uh, in a sense I've got my ideas for what I want to do, but what I, what I really think is important is to look at getting the top team together, the people who really are going to drive this strategically, and then letting them help me design the rest of the service, because I don't know everything by any means. Lots of good people out in the field who know how things should work. Lots of good people in Brussels and in member states. So what you'll see is this evolve over the next few months. Once we've got the decision through the parliament, once we're able to put the service on the ground. So watch this space. Uh, the DRC and leverage. There's a number of different things. I mean, the DRC has got particular issues and problems, and we're working with other countries to try and address those particularly. I think the leverage when you've got a lack of political will is a combination of trying to support economically. It's when economics meets politics in a sense, where you can use your economic weight to try and support the work we do on development anyway, the engagement that we have, and with other countries to try and bring the kind of political leverage. Let me give an example not from the DRC but from Yemen. conference recently which happened to take place in London is very much about offering support to Yemen but also making it clear how important it is to start the dialogues that they've been talking about for some time. There's national dialogues that will actually help create and support the future of Yemen. And that's what we're doing with the DRC too. And John, Belarus, European Parliament. A great note to end on. Actually, the European Parliament's, in my view, really important because what its job in this context is, is to be the checks and balances on behalf of you. You elect them. I'm not elected, they're elected. And part of what they do is make sure that in everything we do, we don't run away from the principles that are Europe. And that's some of the things on human rights that have been a core part of this conversation, but every conversation I have. The principles that we believe in, that they represent the people of Europe, so they're interested in our interests and how important that is. And being the check on me. So I have to appear before them many times. 
I have to explain what I'm doing. And in building new relationships with countries like Belarus, where I've met the foreign minister not that long ago, it's about saying to them, if you want a relationship with Europe, we will support you, but we have high expectations of things you have to do too. And the Parliament helps me able to do that. I apologise to all of those people who wanted to ask, but we have run uh, slightly over our time, and you've been very generous in answering a, a host of questions. As you could see, there are a lot more uh, that you could have been asked, but I'm going to ask uh, Roland Rudd, who is from Business of New York, to conclude the proceedings. Thank you so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank uh, Cathy enormously for her lucid and candid remarks on Europe and for the way she's answered all our questions. You know, during the election campaign, when Nick Clegg shot to fame after the first leaders' debate, uh, and he was under this renewed press scrutiny, there was a piece that really stood out for me, which was by Kelvin McKenzie, the former editor of The Sun, and it was entitled, The Ten Dreadful Things About Nick Clegg You Didn't Know. And the reason we didn't know them was because they were all made up. And I, and I, and I know that when Cathy got that job, she had some tricky press. And I have to say, most of it was completely made up. And the reason for that is because there are a lot of people today who don't like the idea of the Lisbon Treaty. They don't like the idea of Cathy holding that position. They don't like the position in itself. And I think it's a testament to her character and her strength that she's basically shaken that off. She's got on with the job. Boy, has she done it well. And, you know, somebody said about the External Action Service, this was an idea that Cathy inherited, but it's down to her to actually make it work practically. And again, that's entirely what she's done. The first ever super national foreign service, which Cathy's got up and running. So I think our message tonight is keep up the great work, Cathy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you.